0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah 52.
1: As often happens, I look at a passage long enough and then all of a sudden I get aha moments and I think I better understand how it all fits together. So this is the third time we've looked at this passage and it's the third different outline that I've put on the screen. Um, We're going to wrap up this passage and then we're going to do something we haven't done for a very long time, but I'll tell you about that in a second. So, beginning in Isaiah 52.1. Follow along with me. God addresses Jerusalem, the bride, His bride, calling them to awaken themselves, to recognize they're no longer enslaved, the fetters have been unlocked, and He calls them to follow Him. To know him. We begin in 52 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, like a priestly bride, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust. And arise, be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Jerusalem. Why? For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here? declares the Lord, seeing that my people have ta- are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. So God promises to move in and make Himself known. It's a response to His reign, a response to His salvation that gives rise to this knowledge. And now, I I think we get this unpacking of what it will be like for those that know, for those that are awakened. First, the messenger shows up. Last week, we we focused here. We saw that this messenger is Yahweh working through his Messiah. And then, as we will see, the messenger declares something to the watchmen who themselves become messengers. And just as there is a single servant up until Isaiah 53, and then after Isaiah 53, 11 times servants are mentioned, the single servant gives birth to servants. That is, those who get identified with the servant Savior take on the servant Savior's mission. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. And the first one who brought that gospel, good news, the good news of the kingdom was Jesus Himself, who publishes peace, who proclaims good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And as the watchman approaches Sorry, as the messenger approaches, the watchmen hear. And then the voice of the watchman, they lift up that voice. They sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. They see this reconciliation of God with his bride. They've witnessed this remarriage, this renewal of a covenant, and they're part of it, and the testimony goes out. Break forth into singing. They say, you waste places of Jerusalem. Why? Because Yahweh has comforted His people. Comfort ye, comfort ye, Isaiah 40 says. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. This isn't just Israel specific. This is a global reconciliation that He is working ultimately through His servant Savior. All the nations have seen. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So, the messenger proclaims good news, the gospel of God's reign, the gospel of God's saving act, and the watchmen call. They call first to rejoice, and now the second thing they call for. Depart, depart. Go out from there. All that is holding you back, all that has enslaved you, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, as was the case in the original Exodus. You shall not go out in flight, for Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. The word of the Lord. So we we enter in to our passage with the watchman's call to depart and be purified. First, the nature of this call. Depart, depart, touch no unclean thing. What's at stake here is a defilement that's been holding people back. I argued last week, we're not talking about, I don't believe... The fact that, that Isaiah is envisioning them in the clutches of Babylon. Rather, we've moved beyond that in Isaiah's message. We're, he's envisioning the world under the clutches of the curse of God because of their sin and rebellion. And the call is you actually can move out of that enslavement into a second exodus. First exodus, there's a big king named Pharaoh, the greatest king in the world of the day, And God frees them from His power. But there's even a bigger king. Sin. That everyone is enslaved to in the entire world. And here, God is intruding through the person of the servant Savior. And the cry is, in light of our God reigns, leave. Depart. A new exodus. A new pilgrimage. Out of the sphere of sin rather than out of Babylon. The question is, who are we talking about here? So look with me at verse 2. I mean, verse 11, rather. The second half of verse 11. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves. Well, that sounds a lot like we read up in verse 1. Put on beautiful garments. Don't be unclean anymore. Beautiful garments... And the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer be apart. Who's supposed to purify themselves? You who bear the vessels of the Lord. There's only one other place in the Bible where we read about bearing the vessels of the Lord and it relates to the Levites in Numbers chapter 1 who were called to bear the vessels of the temple. But now we're looking at something else. We've already read how the Messiah himself will have the Spirit of God resting upon him as if the Messiah were a movable temple. And then we've seen promises that the Holy Spirit would not only rest on the Messiah, but all those identified with him. As if the community of God, those in Zion, remember how there's people identified with the city. It's not just a place, it's a a being Zion is the bride. It doesn't just house the bride of God. Zion is the bride. Jerusalem is the bride of God. And the presence of God is going to come and rest upon Zion. And all those who are gathered to Zion then all of a sudden get identified with that presence of God as if they become part of this temple. Look at how Isaiah talks elsewhere. Isaiah 56, foreigners, that's a word for those who are not ethnic Jews, foreigners will join themselves to the Lord after Isaiah 53 happens, after the Messiah has done His atoning work, there's going to be a new family because He's going to have a new offspring and He's not going to have a a human wife to marry. He has Jerusalem to marry. And therefore, the offspring of this union will have to be a spiritual offspring. And it's going to include foreigners. Foreigners will join themselves to the Lord, and what are they going to do? They're going to become priests. We're talking about Gentiles here, those who've been under the curse of God. All of a sudden, they're going to become ministers to the Lord to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants. Everyone who keeps His Sabbath, who does not profane it, and holds fast My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain. They'll be gathered into this new Zion, and I'll make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar." For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus cites that text in the Gospels. How about Isaiah 66, last chapter in the book? Or Isaiah. It should say Isaiah 66, not Isaiah 60. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations. As an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters and on mules on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering. So notice this, there's Israelites and then there's the brothers. And just as the Israelites approach the Lord, so also these new brothers from among the nations will approach the Lord. And then God says this amazing thing that some of those from the nations I will also take as priests and Levites. And I think He's talking about us. Notice how Peter talks. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Like the kind of house that is at the center of Jerusalem where the presence of God is and the the temple is. You yourselves, as if the presence of God is resting upon you, are becoming the very temple. But not only are you the temple, you're also the priests in the temple. You are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. That's just what it said was going to happen here. That they would Like the Israelites who bring their grain offerings, so too the brothers. Or their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted at my altar. Like what? You're a priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for my own possession so that you can proclaim my excellencies in the world. Remember Acts 1-8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, that's what He did in the temple of the Old Testament. Now the Spirit's going to rest upon the church. And then what happens? Jesus says, when you become the temple of the living God and the presence of God rests upon you, you'll be my witnesses. All of a sudden, people will see that you value me. They'll look at you as different. You're going to be a pointer to me. You'll be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The temple's going to grow until it fills the entire planet. And it's happening because the church has stretched itself out. The presence of God is on the move.
2: bigger than that. Yeah. It t- t- talk about how this language uses familiar um, um, Jewish sort of, uh, of terms in different yeah. sense. Yeah. And here it says, uh, and these sermons everyone who keeps his Sabbath and does not profane it. I'm wondering if Sabbath has a sort of a new meaning in terms of every day, every minute inside of it. And then the whole idea of burnt offerings and their sacrifice would be accepted on my altar, and we're not doing any of that. I mean, this has a different sort of. Um, I mean, he's using the language, but it's but it's a whole. It seems to me like it's a it's a whole different language. It, it, Sabbath doesn't mean Saturday night or Sunday or something. It means something more than that. Would, you, that, would that support that or not? Would you support that? Or not?
1: I. I think within the flow of Isaiah you're exactly understanding that all of this is is using language that is familiar and yet it's not related to the original context which was filled with anticipation. It's related to the future context that is about realization. So in the same way that the temple of the Old Testament was a picture there is a future temple that is a reality for which the picture only pointed, and that's exactly how I would understand the Sabbath.
2: It seems like the law is part of that. The law was written in, on tablets of stone, but now it's written in our hearts. I mean, that, even that changes. It seems like, like this whole thing brings together the prophecies. That we, I mean... So...
1: so no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. So... Um, It's one of those big, question, big and small questions of faith that I didn't get to, but that I've, I've hoped I was coming back to to talk about the Sabbath. Um, the, I can do it in three minutes and give you the sense for how I understand it. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath, starting from Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3, that was the seventh day. It was the goal to which the original creation pointed We read Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, not simply as a testimony of what was, but what should be. Humans should be imaging God. And yet, Genesis 1 is written down to people who are living after the fall, people who haven't been imaging God, reflecting Him, representing Him, representing Him, resembling Him. And... Yet they read Genesis 1 and they say, well, that's who I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be an imager of God and I'm supposed to fill the earth, multiply and subdue it with His image. The goal was that Sabbath rest would be realized. God seated on the throne. It's not a lazy rest, it's a sovereign rest wherein He's already done all His work. He sits down at the throne and everything in His world is at peace with Him and He's at peace with His world. The fall frustrates the Sabbath. Abrahamic covenant, the sign of that covenant was circumcision. Prior to that, the sign of the Noahic covenant was the flood. What's the sign of the Mosaic covenant? Sabbath. Well, why does God pick the Sabbath to be the sign of the covenant? To represent what this covenant is about? Because the world, after the fall, was no longer in Sabbath. Indeed, God, though He was still seated on the throne, was now working again in order to reconstitute Sabbath. And He set Israel apart to be the means by which Sabbath would be realized on a global scale once again. The world's in chaos, at, at animosity with God, and yet God brings up a people within all the rest of the people of the world through whom He wants to let them be the channel through which blessing would come. It's through Israel that the Messiah will rise who will save not only Israel but save the rest of the world. Israel's purpose as they worked six days to the seventh, six days to the seventh, it's a constant reminder to them of their mission to see realized Sabbath rest over and over again. Where people can trust God as the great supplier of all things where they see Him seated on the throne and all is well. Israel's mission was to not only for themselves see Sabbath realized, where God was on the throne and they're good with that, but that through them all the rest of the world would experience Sabbath. This was the purpose of Israel. This was the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant as it was given. Jesus comes, Isaiah 49, as Israel. Isaiah 49.3, that is his name. My servant, Israel. And what was his mission? To restore Israel. Israel, the person's mission, was to restore Israel, the people, back to God. But it's too light a thing that he would only restore Israel, the people, back to God. I will make him a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus, picture Him as representing the people, fulfilling what God called the people to fulfill. That is, Jesus is the one who is Lord of the Sabbath, who, not on a Saturday, but on a Sunday morning, brought Sabbath to its fulfillment. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. And the very next narrative that Matthew records after Matthew 11, I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and gentle of heart. You will find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Period. On the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain field. And it's in that context where he declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the one who is bringing the rest for which Israel hoped. A rest that's not only for the nation but for the world and he brings it on a Sunday morning. I don't think that Sunday is the Sabbath. Sunday is when the Sabbath was inaugurated. That you and I get to enjoy seven days a week. We worship on a Sunday not because it's the Sabbath day. We worship on a Sunday it's because because that's the day that Sabbath was fulfilled. You and I are under the reign of God through Christ 24-7. And we worship on a Sunday morning in order to remind ourselves in a period of overlap of the ages where the age of Adam and the curse and the brokenness is still here. And it's easy to forget that Jesus reigns. It's easy to forget that He's won rest for our souls when everything around us is chaos. So we gather on Sunday morning to remember that we're living in the Sabbath. We're a people that keep the Sabbath because we are in Jesus and He has, He reigns. He's won the Sabbath for us. It was the goal of history. And it's now been realized forever. It is what we call the day of the Lord. And yet, for most of the world, the day of the Lord is still future. It's a judgment, a punishment. But Jesus bore our punishment at the cross, and in doing so, He inaugurated the day. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament is both punishment and new creation. And Jesus brings them together on the Friday and on the Sunday morning. So, yes, I'm even seeing that Sabbath as bigger. It's the fulfillment of the Sabbath, not the picture of the Sabbath.
2: So, here's a big philosophical question. question. But, um, when we think of our faith as being dependent on a literal understanding of the Bible, I would say, literal, yes, in terms of the, the, the expansive meaning of that passage. It's not the literal keeping the Sabbaths and burnt offerings and all that stuff I mean'm I'm, I'm conflicted by that sense that we 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 proclaim a literal gospel and I, I believe that's what this is but I think there is an understanding in the evangelical Christian world that literal means every word means only what it says and that would not support what we just what I believe is
1: right about it. you know so. so your question regards our are we supposed to approach the Bible literally? And my, my statement is, by literal, the best way to talk about literal is to say whatever the author intended is the literal tri- rendering. To, go, to, to force a literalistic reading upon something that was intended to be read symbolically is a false interpretation. So our goal is to try to understand what is the author saying. And I've, as, we, as we're walking through Isaiah, I'm trying to communicate how I'm understanding where Isaiah is going and how the New Testament authors are reading Isaiah. So we'll see this again now as we, we see Peter. But this is the most significant text. Look at our passage. Verse 11. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. Go out from where? Is it leave Babylon. Or is it leave the ensnares of the devil? We've already seen that it's the servant Savior whose role it is to free people from their bondage, to get them out of the prison of whatever the demonic force is that's holding them. Whatever sin has so easily entangled you, it's Jesus who comes to help us get out of it. That's how I've been reading this text. so, So for me, a guide in understanding the Bible is always, how did the New Testament authors read our passage? So here we go. Our text says, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Here's Paul. Remember, I already said the vessels of the Lord seems to be a hint that we're talking about the priests but are we talking about a subset of ancient Israelites? I've said no. We're talking about a redeemed community identified with the new Jerusalem because all of Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies and everyone identified with it are priests. Here's Paul. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Remember church, you're the temple. And then he goes off on a rampage and cites three Old Testament texts. Number one, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, the first text is two texts. It's Leviticus 26, 11, and 12, and Ezekiel 37, 27. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In Ezekiel 37, remember what happened in Ezekiel 37. How does it begin? Anybody remember that chapter? Dry bones. And the dry bones are a picture of whom? Of Israel. This is where the Mosaic Covenant took them. Do this and live. Do this and live. How'd they do? This is why Paul said the Old Covenant bore a ministry of condemnation. A ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3, 7, and 9. That's what happened in the Old Covenant. It resulted in death. So what do we need? We need new creation. We need resurrection. So God says in Ezekiel 37, 14, after He sees this vision of the bones coming together, I mean, it's like like, uh, God has already come through with the heavenly armies, and wiped out this opposing enemy. That's what his people became. They became the enemy, just like in the sermon this morning. They became the enemy. God wiped out the entire nation. And they've been sitting there for a long time, out baking under the sun. The birds of prey have already taken all the flesh away, and they are dry and baked. That's all that's left of them. And all of a sudden, God says, that's not the final word. And he blows his wind, the wind of his spirit upon these bones. And they come together and reshape into people. And then he says, I will take my spirit, Ezekiel 37, 14, I'll put my spirit upon you as if the people become the temple. And then they live. The very next story unpacks that in different terms, and this is it. Ezekiel 37, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I think he's describing the reality he just unpacked in the vision of Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. When he says, I will dwell with them, don't think of a future Jerusalem that has a temple wherein, like Israel of old, would come to the temple and leave the temple. Come to the temple and leave the temple. Rather, picture a people who have the very Spirit of God dwelling upon them, who have somehow been identified with the Holy of Holies so that God is with them and they are dwelling with God and He's dwelling with them. This is how I understand Ezekiel's final vision from Ezekiel... Ezekiel... 30, Ezekiel 40 to 48, that final temple vision, I don't think it's telling us that a new temple is going to be built in the future. It's rather we read it in light of what he's already given us. This picture is a symbol of the people and what he's going to do among them. This is how he's inviting us to read the text. And so to read it differently, I think, is to not read it as he intended. Paul says, we are the temple. This is fulfillment. In Jesus, who is the temple, John chapter 2, destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it up. He was talking about the temple of his body. John already in John chapter 1 said, in Jesus, the word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt like a temple among us, and we beheld his glory. Jesus was the temple of God, the very presence of God. And as we identify with Him, we become the temple in fulfillment of Leviticus, uh, this should say Leviticus 26, not 16, Leviticus 26, Ezekiel 37, now He goes to our text, therefore, just another quote, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing. In verse 15, this is where he makes the statement, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Many people just view that as a marriage text, but in the context, it seems much broader than that. Don't let yourself get mixed up with the world in such a way that it doesn't allow you to display the value of God. To make God look much that his presence is diminished don't attach yourself to anyone in any way that diminishes the presence of God from blazing brightly in your soul and he cites our text it's a second exodus text and he is reading it and i think he's reading it the right way i think that's how we have to understand it go out from their midst And he's not talking about leaving Babylon unless we talk about Babylon like John does in the book of Revelation where Babylon is a picture of the world order that is anti-God. And in doing so, there's a Babylon in Ethiopia and it looks very different than the way that Babylon is working in the West. Every society, Babylon takes its own shape. It's the means by which God decei- say, sorry, Satan deceives and ensnares and enslaves. In every culture, it looks differently. And the call is, wherever you're planted in this world, depart from such a place, from such a sphere, and turn to God. There's such deception. Satan? is so deceptive, to suck us in, it comes in so many forms and it targets age groups in its own way. The result can be the wasting of life, video games, easy to play. I haven't played one in a very long time. I just told some college students that. They couldn't believe it. Um, They mentioned some, and I had never heard of them. But for so many, it can be a means by which we can get enslaved. The the Internet in, in the form of Facebook or Instagram... It can suck us in and all of a sudden, whoa, how many hours have gone by? And it, the call is, okay, I'm, I just had this dialogue with my kids yesterday morning. Um, we were in the book of Deuteronomy in, with me and my boys. And we were talking about loving God with all. And um, they like to talk a lot about football. They got their football cards. This is a pretty big day in their minds. And yesterday it was a big thing for um, my two oldest boys because they finally got their younger brother to say he'd vote for the Vikings. <laughs> and because uh, last week he was so disappointed with that final catch. Um, and But I was able to talk to them, I, just just pressing them. What does it mean to pursue sports for the glory of God? That somehow when we eat, when we drink, whatever we do, like football, what does that look like practically to watch big men take other men and slam their heads down into the ground for the glory of God? This afternoon, I'm counting on the fact that I'm going to watch this game for the glory of God. I hope that I can. One of the things that we've been doing is there's no commercials on at our house, um, but during commercial time that's when I'm reading uh, missionary letters, and our kids have been creating a, a big book with specific where they draw pictures to remind them of what the prairie quests are of our different um, missionary supporters. And we're constantly evaluating um, sometimes better sometimes I do a better job than other times of okay let's um, uh, what's what's the guy's name who caught the ball at the end? Stefan Diggs. Diggs yeah I, I remembered him. <laughs> um, so but he wanted me to remember him uh, at least this this appeared to be that way. Um, and then but, but processing such things with my children um, and trying to think about how their passion for sport cards and all the time that they take evaluating the statistics of their players, um, how does that relate to ultimate things? It's not that it can't relate to ultimate things. It's one of the gifts of God. Football is one of the gifts of God in, in our world. And yet it can so easily be abused. And Babylon begins to set in. And the call is depart yourself. Depart, depart. Go from their midst. Why? Because you're the temple of the living God. So don't don't allow yourself to live in a context where He's not being displayed, whatever that should look like. And then the last text is from Isaiah 43, 6. I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Remember, we looked at the text where Zion has sons and daughters. They gather to Jerusalem. Paul is thinking about That text. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then he says in the very next verse, chapter 7, verse 1, we have all these promises. He recognizes that these words from Isaiah, these words from Moses and Ezekiel, these were not written for the people of the day. They were promises, even in the form of commands. They were promises that are only being fulfilled in our day. That's how Paul's reading Isaiah. And that's how I think Isaiah wanted us to read him, and Paul's just identifying it. Last. Hey, I have some
3: temple questions. <laughs> um. Are the temple, but we are not Jesus to the eschatological temple in the new heaven and the new earth. And how, what's the difference across people? That's still a hard thing for me.
1: So the question is how is it that Jesus can be the temple and yet the church cannot be Jesus and yet becomes the temple? And in the future, there won't be a temple. And even we individually in 1 Corinthians 6, your body is the temple, an individual uh, claim on the temple. How does all that work? Okay, So in Ephesians 2.20 the apostles and the prophets we are built, all of us are the temple of the living God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ the cornerstone. So there's still priority and he's the one that lays out um, he's the one that provides the balance, the equilibrium the, the The clarity, that's the role of the cornerstone to make sure everything else is level in accordance with it. So, Jesus is a human, God-man, and He says, I have to go in order that the Helper can come. Now, that Helper that comes, we learn in the book of Acts, when He says, the Spirit will come upon you and you'll be My witnesses, well, in Acts 16.7... The very spirit that came upon them is called, Acts 16, 7, the spirit of Jesus. So my understanding is that in the Old Testament, the temple could not go global because it was made of a physical building. The presence of God was there, but the temple building restrained it. Jesus embodied the presence of God. In His human body, the presence of God resided. His body had to leave in order that the presence that filled Him and that identified Him could then be dispersed more globally through many other bodies. But His body had to go in order for His presence in this sphere of space and time to return and get connected to many others. And now as that new temple that is made up of the same presence, but it, it's it's the presence of the resurrected Christ, so that it's not... Um, in that shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament, even the presence of God has become more focused. It's not just like a change in scope. The presence of God was in one place, now the presence of God is all over the place. Instead, it's even a change in kind. Because it's the presence of the resurrected Christ, in whom is all power, all authority in a distinctive way to overcome sin, to overcome death, and to restore all of creation, overcoming the old creation. So now that presence comes down, it's democratized, as it were, on all kinds of people, but that's why as the presence goes out, you'll receive, I'll pour out my spirit and you'll be my witnesses. That's, that's the whole point. It's the Spirit of God who's now at work in them as... They move from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The temple goes global. Now, it is a temple such that Isaiah can talk about at the end of time, in one breath, he can say people will gather to that temple, to Jerusalem. In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be higher than all the other mountains, and the peoples will, and all nations will gather to it. So, at one level, it's not that the temple is going out to the world it's that the world is coming to the temple but they don't have to travel an ocean and go to Jerusalem instead the temple has indeed come to them so that they can encounter the presence of God when they see you at work your grandkids can encounter the presence of God when they sit on your lap that they're actually coming to the temple so that the book of Hebrews can say well first of all Paul can say In Galatians 4.27, 26, to Galatians 4.26, Jerusalem that is above is our mother. We're the offspring of her. We've got a new birth certificate, according to Psalm 87, saying this one was born there. You were born in northern Michigan? No, you were born in the new Jerusalem. New birth certificates, new identity. Attached with this location where the presence of God is at the center, or Hebrews chapter twelve, you have not come to Mount Zion. To sorry, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where you've gathered. Now, what that means is that, according to Ephesians chapter um, Ephesians two inexperienced thing the move from you were dead in your trespasses and sins to, but God has made you alive. It says he raised you up and seated you in the heavenlies with Christ. So our citizenship is not here, says Paul in Philippians. It's our citizenship is above in heaven. There's There's this At one level, the presence of God is here filling the earth, and yet our identity and the temple itself is still there. But the day is coming when all that is earthly and temporal here will be burned up, and yet At another level, Romans 8 says this creation is longing for the day when the sons of God will be revealed because in that day all corruption will be taken away. It's as if it's not just a new creation, it's a renewed creation. That there's some continuity between what's going on now and what's going on in the future. So that even as the people of God fill the earth and see people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation gathering... The temple has filled the earth in anticipation of the renewal of creation. When, I think it's Revelation chapter 5, John can simply say, it's as if a scroll was in front of our eyes and what is the new creation? It'll be as if the scroll is simply rolled up and we can see what was there all along. And, or Revelation 21, it says that the, come, I'll show you the bride. And I went out and I saw a city. That's what he says. Come out and show, I'll show you the bride. Revelation 21, 9. And I went out and I saw a city, the new Jerusalem, descending from heaven. When we get to Isaiah 65, 17, 18, and 19, we're going to see what I believe is a bringing together of new creation in Jerusalem. That It's not that there's a Jerusalem in the new creation, but that Jerusalem is the new creation. So that, what we're seeing fulfilled is Jeremiah chapter 3, 16 through 18, In that day, the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies, will not be remembered anymore. But rather, all of Jerusalem will be the throne of God. And gathered there will be people from all the nations and a reunited Israel. That means that the Ark of the Covenant is where the law used to be place, the tablets of stone, now there will be no more Ark of the Covenant. Instead, all of Jerusalem will be the throne. That is, all of Jerusalem has become the Ark of the Covenant. All of Jerusalem is in the Holy of Holies. All of Jerusalem is now filled with people who have had the heart of stone taken out and it's been replaced by the spirit of the living God so that they have the law written on their hearts. They become the tablets of stone in the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God is resting upon them. That's the vision. When we get to Revelation 21, it describes the city in the form of a cube. Right? And there's only one cube outside of Revelation 21 in the Bible, and it's the description of the Holy of Holies. The very, the, when it says there will be no temple, the temple by its nature distinguished that which was holy from that which was common. There, were, there was the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, and then there was the holy place where only the priests could go, and then there was the a-holy place, the outer court. Well now, it's only the Holy of Holies... That has become everything. There's no temple because there's no distinction between God and man. There's no priest that, that can only go so far. Now everybody is within the Holy of Holies. We have all become the Ark of the Covenant. God is resting upon us and it only happens through Christ. So that he's called the mercy seat. He's the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's as if God is reigning through Christ over us. And everywhere we go, we're putting him on display. And we're longing for the day when our delight will only be in him. We'll be able to enjoy things like football without uh, competing interest. Both the players and the watchers will be perfectly honoring to God. And it's all because of Christ. So it's only our identification with Him that allows us to participate and enjoy the presence of God without being incinerated like Nadab and Abihu were in the presence of God. Those are the two options. Either the substitute sacrifice gets burnt up or the sinner gets burnt up. When you encounter the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And the only way we get to enjoy and celebrate and live in the presence of God is because the substitute offering has satisfied His wrath. And now we get to enjoy the presence.
3: One last question. And that is, does the going out from the midst and the welcoming that we see in this passage from Isaiah, is it a stretch
1: So the question is, how specific can we get to fulfillment, the fulfillment of these realities? Can we connect them to realities? I think that Pentecost is a massive. The resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost are um, the center focus of when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's in that moment that we see most crisply, and even in that moment it's spread out, right? Um, There's a difference between the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost itself. But it's in that moment that that something new is birthed, that new creation is, is intruding. It's like the rock moves, the light of God bursts forth, it's new creation power, and it's at... Pentecost then, after the ascension, that, that power that brought about the resurrection now comes to reside on the people. And the temple goes...
3: Structurally, this...
1: Yes. Yes. The church becomes this temple at Pentecost. It's when the Spirit comes down. And the challenge for us, living in the all-readiness, where the future has already come in, the new creation has started in our lives, and yet we're still living in a world where the old creation with sin and the devil and cancer and car accidents is still here. And so there's still that, at one level, when in our initial testimony of faith, I believe, our repentance, turning from sin and saying yes to God, we made that step of departing and purifying. And yet also we recognize Paul here is talking to the church. And he's calling people, recognizing You can make bad decisions even though you're redeemed. You can forget who you're supposed to be. That's part of my role, Paul says. To remind you, don't hang out in a way that allows those negative influences to overcome your life. Let your eyes be pure. Let your ears be pure. What you take in, don't let it do unlawful harm to yourself. And he's calling the church to live as... In alignment with the identity that has already been won for them, that's good. Wow, one verse. I had I had a big big assignment for us. Um, look at our last verse. Just look at it. Depart, depart, for you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight, for the Lord God will go before you. We know in the first Exodus, haste, using the exact same word, was a key part of the factor. Eat your food, fasten your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You'll eat with haste. Why? Because it's the Lord's Passover and He's going to get you out of there. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said... We shall all be dead. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough in the wilderness that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Something's changed. In this move from the day is coming when you'll no longer remember and declare, Jeremiah 16, we've come out of Egypt, but rather you'll say, oh, a new exodus has happened. In that new exodus, haste is not necessary. And the reason is because God will be with you. But God was with the first group. And they still had to go in haste. So that suggests to me that we're talking about something fresher, something newer, that the presence of God of this sort allows you to not have to go in haste, whereas the presence of God during the first exodus, they still had to go in haste. Notice how it's grounded there. For the Lord your God will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And I just think probably this, I will be with you, God will go before you, the the image is probably, it's the presence of God through a as one who's already done the conquering. That the enemy has already overcome. And this is the presence of a God who's working through the, um, the Emmanuel, God with us in Jesus who has destroyed all our enemies already. There's a sense in which we don't have to fear in this text, whereas in the first Exodus, they were, they were fleeing because the enemy was right on their heels, and it's not happening here.
2: Well, maybe the enemy's still here, but the enemy can't destroy you in the same way the Egyptians could destroy those fleeing.
1: The mention of the rear guard would help support that idea, maybe. So, I, I've, yeah, I was pondering that. That's so very true.
2: So you can, nobody can
1: destroy. In the first Exodus, that group was still enslaved to the power of the devil. They were just being freed from a pictorial freedom from an earthly king. Now things have changed. Next week, Lord willing, we get to dive into Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. We're going to spend a few weeks there uh, because it's the richest, most clear statement of of what we call penal substitutionary atonement. And I'll unpack that amazing, beautiful doctrine in the next three weeks. So, Father, thank you that you go before us and you are behind us. You're our protector. Move us to run from every unclean thing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason Deroshi, professor of Old Testament and biblical theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason Deroshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. Daroshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.